Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. This weekend, Bottomless Brunch begins at 11 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. Enjoy Bottomless Mimosas, Bloody Marys, Truly, and Bud Light for only $20 with your purchase of a brunch entree, be it beer, burgers, bourbon, or baseball. We always encourage you to walk on over to Walters. Walters is also the perfect place to watch football with friends, whether it be Monday, Thursday, or the weekend. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bogarts, the 0-1, and this is lifted in the left field. It backs up Brantley. He makes the catch, and the Houston Astros are headed to the World Series. Your 2021 American League champions, the Houston Astros, a mob scene to the left of the pitcher's mound as the Astros win, shutting out the Red Sox 5 to nothing and take the American League Championship Series four games to two. One ball and no strikes. Pitch on the way. There's a shot to Dansby. He slides to it. He's got it. Throws over. There is a new champion of the National League, and it is the Atlanta Braves. They have won the 2021 National League pennant, and the Atlanta Braves are going to the World Series. And welcome to Nat Chat for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. I was wondering if I would forget how to do that. Good thing I did not. Along with Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com, I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. We are back with the first of our off-season shows. We'll be doing shows every so often during the off-season as events warrant. And yes, we have had Nationals events that warrant an episode. We're going to be getting into the changes on the Nationals coaching staff, including Kevin Long being out as hitting coach and Darnell Coles being in as hitting coach. We're going to get to the Nats having already re-signed all CDs Escobar. That sure didn't take long. And we'll talk about a postseason that has featured quite a few former Nationals and Really, even current Nationals, when you go back to Juan Soto showing up at the National League wildcard game. You know, it's interesting looking back on that. You had Soto, you had Kevin Long. Boy, doesn't that look especially interesting now. You had Scott Boris. I was not invited to go to the game, Mark. Were you? Were you at all uh, requested to be in the presence of Soto and Long and Boris at that NL wildcard game? You know, I had the invitation. Unfortunately, I had a family event that night, Al, so I couldn't make it uh, out there to L.A. I would have loved to be there for that one. Unfortunately, I couldn't could make it. But hey, good to talk to you again. It's been a few weeks. Like you said, a little bit has happened. I know fans out there have been wondering when we were going to do this. And uh, we promised them we'd have some off-season episodes for you. So here we go. We don't know when the next one's going to be quite yet, but we felt like this was a good time to jump back into it and catch everyone up. 
Yeah. And we appreciate all the nice things that people have had to say about the podcast. It's nice to be missed. And uh, like Mark said, you know, every so often during the offseason, we'll be chiming in on uh, what is going on with the Nationals. So a lot of different ways we could start, but I think the hitting coach thing may well be the most interesting thing that has taken place for the Nationals since the end of their season. And there are actually a lot of little things to this to get into here. So just to kind of do the basic outline of what went down. So Kevin Long is gone and Darnell Coles is in. Kevin Long has left the Nationals after four seasons as their hitting coach to become the Philadelphia Phillies hitting coach, despite the Nats having invited Long to be back as Nats hitting coach for the 2022 season. Uh, We can get to Coles in a moment, but I guess the best way to start this would be Ultimately, why is Kevin Long no longer the Nationals hitting coach? We know that things got weird between him and the team last offseason with him wanting a multi-year contract, the team not wanting to give him a multi-year contract. Is that what this is about or is this about more than just the contract? I'm going to infer a few things here because I don't have hard evidence and you know exact uh, sightings or, or on the record, anything like that. But I, I think you can kind of read between the lines and a few things. And like you mentioned, For those who don't remember, a year ago, let's even go back beyond that. In 2018, when the Nationals hired Davey Martinez as their manager, they also hired Kevin Long as their hitting coach. Now, Long also interviewed for the managerial job. He was one of the candidates for the job. He obviously didn't get it, but they liked him. They knew his reputation, and they hired him to be their hitting coach. And in doing so, they gave him a three-year contract, which for the Nationals, I don't know if it was fully unprecedented, but pretty close to it. They have hardly ever given out multi-year deals to coaches, you know, let alone managers. Davey was the first manager to get more than two years. So he's on the staff 18, 19, obviously they win the World Series, and then 20, and his contract's up at the end of 20, and he lets it be known that he would like a multi-year contract from them, just like the previous one he got. The Nationals said, I'm sorry, we're not in a position to do that right now, so we'd love to have you back for one year. But your contract is up, and if you want, you are free to go see what else is out there if you can find a better deal. And so that's what he actually did, and there was about a week there where it looked like he was gone. Turns out he didn't get an offer that he liked better, so he comes back to the Nationals, he takes their one-year offer, and he's here in 2021. So now his contract is up again the end of this year, just like the rest of the staff. Again, they say to him, we'd like you back, but your contract is up. You're welcome to look at other deals that are out there. He did, and he took the Phillies job. Now, I have not seen reported anywhere that he got more than one year from the Phillies. Doesn't mean he didn't, but that has not gotten out there that he did. So I don't know if it's straight up they offered him more years, and that's why he took the job, or did just sort of the events of the last couple of years and the way that all went down with the Nationals make him decide, you know what, I'm probably going to leave anyways, and I want to go somewhere where I just feel like I'm in a better situation. So I can't say I'm shocked by it. I'm a little surprised that it's the Phillies right up the road, that that's where he wound up. But obviously the chance to work with Joe Girardi, who was his manager with the Yankees. So he's worked with them before. Chance to work with Bryce Harper. It was appealing to him. And so that's why he is no longer the Nats hitting coach. And it's a loss for the team. Let's make that clear because he is widely respected. And the offense this year was not really the problem in the big picture. And obviously Juan Soto had a phenomenal year under his tutelage. But I also didn't get the sense from the national standpoint that they felt like he was so valuable to them that they were going to do whatever it took to keep him. Obviously, they didn't do that. They let him walk. 
So I think that's kind of what you get at is, did you not offer him the multi-year contract because of strictly this organizational policy of by and large, we don't give coaches multi-year contracts? Or did you not offer him the multi-year contract because you weren't that fearful of him leaving you and that you felt like there would be a life after Kevin Long? And that's the information with this situation that I think would be most revealing. There is such irony, though, in that the Nationals in 2021 ultimately ended up being a terrible pitching team and actually a pretty good hitting team. The pitching coach is back, no questions asked, and the hitting coach is gone, and that part of it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's also this thing of his relationship with Juan Soto. We know that Juan really likes Kevin Long, and again, you know, I go back to Soto showing up at the NL wildcard game. He showed up with his agent and with his hitting coach, and you know, I don't know if that was like posturing slash politicking or if that was just, you know, Soto hanging out with his guy. But I think that does kind of potentially take on a different meaning now that, you know, Soto and Boris are out there flaunting Kevin Long at the National League wildcard game. That got a lot of attention. Soto being in the stands, you know, people really picked up on that. And uh, it's just interesting to look back on that now. I think, you know, we are not that we're geniuses, but we're smart enough to know that, you know, coaches aren't everything in baseball and that a good hitter is a good hitter because he's a good hitter, not because of his hitting coach. But, you know, I think about Kevin Long. He has an excellent reputation, you know, the launch angle guru. He's the guy who transformed Daniel Murphy more than anybody else. He has been a hitting coach on multiple pennant winners. I think there's value in that. He was the Yankees hitting coach in 09 when they won the World Series. He was the Mets hitting coach in 2015 when they won the NL pennant. He was the Nats hitting coach when they won the World Series in 2019. The guy lasted in the city of New York for more than a decade as a hitting coach. That's not easy to do. New York is a cauldron. The fact that he lasted as long as he did, he was a Yankees hitting coach 07 through 14. He was a Mets hitting coach 15 through 17. That's 11 seasons as a hitting coach in New York. And if, in fact, this was just about money or contractual length and you said, nah, we don't do that, you know, you tick off Soto to at least some degree and you lose him to a National League East rival, I don't see the point in that, especially when you consider what hitting coaches make. I mean, he probably was making less than a million dollars a year. You could afford to pay that if you really value the guy. So that's why I do wonder about what you just talked about. If maybe the Nationals, for whatever reason, just didn't think he was worth it. And I guess we'll see if they're proven right on that. Here's a few things. Let's get it more in now to the baseball side of all this. And I, I thought there were some telling things. So as we said, the lineup was not really the Nationals issue at the end of the season. It was the pitching staff, which was quite frankly awful, the state that it was in at the end of the year. And offensively, they were scoring four or five runs a game. They were just as productive, if not more productive after the trade deadline as they were before. But when you really break it down into how that all came about and how they were doing it, there were some things that I think maybe left Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo a little bit dissatisfied. And among those things are they're, while they had the highest on-base percentage in the league, they also, I think they felt like maybe guys were chasing a little too much. Like They're a really good contact team, and maybe to their detriment in some ways, in hitting pitches out of zone. Remember we talked about Alcides Escobar, how great he was at hitting bad pitches? Well, maybe that was too much so. Like Maybe they felt like they actually could draw more walks, or at the very least, lay off those pitches and wait for the better pitch to hit. And he wasn't the only one. They had other guys on the team that did that. You look at their numbers with runners in scoring position, and really more specifically, their numbers with the bases loaded, which were atrocious. They were the worst in the league. Now, is that a fluke? I don't know. But it really stood out as a bizarre, completely 
opposite to how they were doing otherwise. Their numbers with the bases loaded, they hit under 200, worse than the league. Remember, they hit into a ton of double plays. I think there could have been a little bit of dissatisfaction in maybe some of the situational hitting, not the in total gross product of what they were doing offensively. But when you broke it down to individual situations, maybe not feeling like they were as good as they could be. And I thought it was telling that in Darnell Coles's introductory Zoom with us, which by the way, went about 30 minutes and he had a lot to say and pretty interesting stuff. There was a whole lot of talk about what I was just describing there. And the way he was talking, it reminded me of the way Davey talks so much about hitting and priorities. And maybe this was just a case of Darnell Coles being more in sync with how Davey Martinez thinks as a hitter and what is important to him as a hitter, that even though the numbers were good for Kevin Long, even though you can't dispute his track record, that maybe Coles just sort of fit in a little better with what they're trying to do right now. Yeah, it would make sense because you're trying to figure out, well, why allow for this change to happen? For the record, the Nationals in the 2021 regular season in the National League were third in team-weighted runs created plus at 101. It was the Giants number one, the Dodgers number two, the Nationals number three. I think that probably shocks a lot of people that the Nationals were the third best offensive team, the third best hitting team in the NL by the end of the regular season. So you say, okay, why would you allow for your hitting coach with this very good reputation to walk? And, you know, that to me makes as much sense as anything. So Darnell Coles is the new man. He has ties to Davey Martinez. They played together on the 1992 Cincinnati Reds. Uh, Some of you may remember Darnell Coles as a member of the 1993 World Series champion Toronto Blue Jays. He's worked for the Nats before, which is kind of interesting. It was a while ago, but he worked for the Nats from 2006 through 2009 in various roles in the team's minor league system. He was most recently the Arizona Diamondbacks hitting coach 2019 through 2021. He was a hitting coach for the Milwaukee Brewers 2015 through 2018. I mean, it's more than possible he ends up doing a great job here. You mentioned him speaking for 30 plus minutes. I guess, was that what stood out the most to you? Just some of the situational stuff that Coles emphasized? Yeah. And really talking about the quality of contact that they want. That like, yes, he's proud of this is the team that struck out the fewest times in the National League. And that's a good thing. But sometimes maybe they were expanding in a way not to strike out, but actually to their detriment. And we talked about Escobar. We remember when Starlin Castro was on the team, he did a lot of that. Even Juan Soto, as great as he is, almost sometimes too much for his own benefit. And so I I think the way that Darnell was talking about it was he wants them, as in his words were, dominate the strike zone. Know which are the good pitches to hit and which are the ones not to hit. Consistency of guys understanding the strike zone allows us to not strike out as much. It's when guys swing at pitches on the edges and we're chasing and we're not aligned with understanding what the pitcher's uh, trying to do. So we're game planning. We're always trying to make sure that I got our guys understand what the other guy's trying to do to them. It's about being selective, but it's also about just because you can put the bat on the ball doesn't mean you necessarily should. He is into using all fields. He's not anti-launch angle, anything like that. I mean, he believes in the home run and all that, but I think he also really believes in situational hitting. And that is right in line with how Davey Martinez has always talked about it. And it's not to say the Nats were bad at that. Certainly in 2019, they were phenomenal at it. All the two out hits, all the two strike hits, the you know base hit to center field, the opposite field, that kind of stuff. They were really good at it. But maybe with a younger team now and some guys who are less experienced, the idea would be that you want to have a different voice there and sort of help mold them into the kind of hitters 
that Davey Martinez and Darnell Coles think they can be. You know, Juan Soto is going to be a great hitter no matter who his hitting coach is. I think we can acknowledge that. He may have had a great relationship with Kevin Long, but I don't think that's suddenly going to change. He's not going to drop off dramatically off the table because he has a new hitting coach. So maybe this is more about guys like Carter Keboom and Luis Garcia, Victor Robles, helping them become the hitters that they're supposed to be. And, you know, let's acknowledge, like, for all the good performances they had from Soto and Josh Bell, and, you know, there were a handful of players who were supposed to be big-time long-term pieces of the puzzle here who have not developed. So if you're going to credit Kevin Long for the good stuff, you have to at least acknowledge that maybe he played some role in not getting the most out of Carter Keboom or Victor Robles. So that could have something to do with this as well. Just to put a number on the chase rate stuff, so the Nationals did finish the regular season with the fourth lowest chase rate in the National League at 29.2% chasing pitches outside the strike zone. So, you know, at least numerically, that doesn't back up the idea that they were chasing pitches at some abnormal rate. But again, we don't know what they're looking at. We don't know if maybe they're, you know, uh, narrowing that down to specific guys, specific portions of the season. It's not chase like swing and miss. It is like making contact on a pitch that's not a good pitch to hit. And maybe those were those ground balls. Think of all the ground balls, all the double plays. I think that's the kind of stuff they're talking about there. What about the Soto angle to all this? Do you think this ticks him off? Do you think this displeases him? Do you think this is the kind of thing that annoys him, that his guy, Kevin Long, is ousted after an overall very good offensive season for the Nationals? Well, I mean, number one, let's, you know, he wasn't ousted. His contract was up. He chose to go somewhere else. So it's, they didn't fire him. Now, could they have done more to try to retain him? Of course they could have. Make that clear. I'm sure it wasn't his preference, as with so many established players, when things are going well, you want to keep it the way they are. But, you know, Max Scherzer went through a whole bunch of different pitching coaches over the years. Ryan Zimmerman's gone through so many different managers over the years. It's part of the game. It's the way it works. He may not be thrilled with it, but for all we know, he ends up having success with Darnell Coles. And I mean, if you're out there thinking that this is the reason that he ultimately chooses not to re-sign with the Nationals, I think there's going to be a lot more at play than that. I don't think that's going to be what is the deciding factor in whether he chooses to stay with the Nationals or not. It's going to come down to two things. It's going to come down to money, and it's going to come down to are the Nationals in a position to win come 2023-2024. Well, we know the Nationals did not want to show the money to Kevin Long, and uh, I do wonder to what extent that bothers Soto. But look, he's Juan Soto. He doesn't need anybody telling him what to do when it comes to batting. The change in hitting coach is not the only change that we've had to Davey Martinez's coaching staff since the end of the national season. Out are two longtime Nats coaches in Bob Henley and Randy Knorr, at least out from a standpoint of being on the Nationals' major league coaching staff. They are remaining in the organization in player development roles, but these are two guys whose names we've become accustomed to. Bob Henley, Bob Senley Henley, had been the Nats' third base coach in seven of the previous eight seasons. Randy Knorr has served in a variety of roles for the Nats, including as first base coach for this past season. Um, I know that there are various potential reasons for this. For me, the thing that I came back to with the Henley and Knorr stuff is just how awful the Nats were as a base running team this past season. The Nats ended up being dead last by miles in Major League Baseball and Fangraph's all-encompassing base running metric, BSR, minus 25.4. The next worst total was the Yankees, minus 15.1. I know it's not as simple as you just attach a metric to two coaches, and that's why they're no longer with you. But to me, it's hard to see that and not wonder about that having played at least somewhat of a role in uh, Henley and Knorr no longer being on the Major League coaching staff. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think what will be telling, and we don't know who the replacements are yet as we're taping this. I would imagine we're starting to get close to that. Usually, maybe right after the World Series ends and some other coaches become available, that could have something to do with it. But I think it will be telling if they're... The two things I would be looking for in, in those two positions are someone with a good track record for coaching base running, like a Davey Lopes. They're not Davey Lopes is retired now, but he was brought in at that time under Dusty Baker. That was his thing as the first base coach. He was one of the best all time at base running. So that's number one. And number two, I would expect somebody who has a background as an outfield instructor. So Bob Henley, that was also his job. He was their outfield coach in addition to being a third base coach, even though as a player, Bob Henley was a catcher, never played the outfield. Done this for several years and let's give him credit. You know, he was doing this when Victor Robles was a gold glove finalist, when Juan Soto was a gold glove finalist, helped Soto make some real improvements this last year. So it's not like he didn't know how to do it or have success, but he wasn't a natural fit there. So I do think one of those two new coaches is probably going to be somebody with a background of coaching outfield or somebody who played outfield. And then I also think base running is going to be a big part of it. In the case of uh, Randy Knorr, he's someone who everybody in the organization has tons of respect for. He has done it all for them, managing at every level, essentially, but the big leagues. It's a job that he always wanted and never got. And I was glad to see him back on the big league staff this year, but I was also surprised that it was at first base. That felt like a little bit of a mismatch for him. He's more suited as a bench coach, even a bullpen coach, although that's kind of an inferior position. First base coach, traditionally, not always, but traditionally, that is kind of your base running guy. That's what they're going to do, you know, or be involved with coaching infielders, outfielders, something like that. So it seemed like a bit of a mismatch all along. I'm glad they're both still in the organization. These guys aren't going anywhere. They are valuable to them as an organization. They've been here from the very beginning. They go back to Montreal, both of them. But I think there may be better ways to utilize what they can offer to you than the positions they were in over the last year. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How much of this do you think is Davey Martinez further putting his stamp on his own coaching staff? I mean, Kevin Long, Bob Handley, Randy Noor, these were not known as Davey guys. I know Long came in with Davey, but the conventional wisdom is that Davey wasn't just handpicking his coaching staff for that initial season. Darnell Coles is pretty clearly a Davey Martinez guy. Last offseason, Jim Hickey, new pitching coach, pretty clearly a Davey guy. Do you think this is another sign of Davey having more input, more power, or do you think these are really Mike Rizzo decisions and you know Davey just happens to have some input now in, in terms of who replaces these people? 
No, I think Davey has a lot of say in this. And if you remember at the end of the year when we had our talk with Rizzo and he was asked about Kevin Long. Would that be a Davey Martinez question? So like he was deflecting that and saying, no, our manager is in charge of the coaching staff. Now, that's not free reign. The GM is involved in that. But I do think Davey has a big part to do with it. Now, the one thing I'll say, even though, I mean, I didn't realize at the time and and he hadn't worked officially with Randy Knorr, they did have a, a relationship from having played years ago and knowing each other through the game. It is somebody he's talked about as being close with. And in those years that Randy was the AAA manager, they were communicating all the time and really valued Randy's opinion as far as who should be called up, who's next in line, that kind of stuff. So I think that was a good relationship, and I think they have a lot of respect for each other. I just think in that case, it's there's something Randy can do that's more valuable to the organization, I think, than being their first base coach. And in Bob Henley's case, again, he's been around so long, everybody loves him. You can argue whether you think he's a good third base coach or not. It gets too many runners thrown out. But I think you get to a certain point that you say, it's time to start doing something different. It can get a little stale after a while. Maybe there's another job for him in player development, which is a big deal for this organization now, needing to get better at player development. Maybe these two guys can actually have more usefulness to them and make a bigger impact by working with minor leaguers than big leaguers. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. Escobar slightly open stance, knees bent. Now the pitch. Swing and a line drive to left. That's going to be a base hit. Toppy off with it. And one run will score. In from third is Keeboom, stopping at third of the play. Stevenson, Thomas to second. And on at first with his third hit of the game. And his 27th run batted into the year is Alcides Escobar. All right, so we've had the changes to Davey Martinez coaching staff since the national season. We also have had some roster news since the end of the national season. It usually takes a while in Major League Baseball for a team's offseason to get going in terms of players coming and going. But the Nationals, a mere two days after the end of their regular season, announced that they had agreed with Alcides Escobar on a one-year contract, re-signed the guy a mere two days after the end of the season. The 2022 season will be Alcides' age 35 season. I think everybody by now knows the Alcides Escobar story from this past season. He gets acquired on July 3rd from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations in a pure desperation move. He ends up being the Nationals' everyday shortstop for the rest of the season. I know he played some second base, but 
by and large, he was the Nats every game shortstop and number two batter for the rest of the season. And he was stunningly productive. Uh, 75 games, a wins above replacement for baseball reference of 1.5. Finished with an OPS plus of 105, which is above league average. He was the master of the garbage hit. I mean, nobody covered the plate like Alcides. Nobody turned plate appearances in which he was down 0-2 or 1-2 into productive plate appearances quite like Alcides. He was great with runners in scoring position. You know, him resigning is not a surprise by any means. Were you at all surprised, though, that this happened two days after the end of the season? I mean, there was like no desire on his part to test out the open market or anything like that. He took the one-year contract. It's not for a lot of money. And he'll be back with the Nats in 2022. Yeah, I'm not surprised that he's back at all. I am surprised that it happened that quick. I thought, you know, maybe a November kind of signing. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think it would drag on real long. But for it to happen that quickly, I'm sure the Nationals were looking at it and saying, hey, let's take care of this before he has a chance to talk to anybody else. And let's make sure we have that locked up. And if you're out, see Escobar, you got to remember where he was just four months ago and what thought he had of still being a big leaguer at that point. Had spent a couple years at AAA. He spent 2020 in Japan. If not for Trey Turner, what was it, jamming his finger while sliding into third base, going for the cycle. A hustle triple. That's a double for any other human being. But Trey Turner legs out the triple, his second of the year, and his third career cycle. And Jordy Mercer getting hurt in that same game. And Alex Avila straining his calves, playing second base in emergency. And Carter Keboom being hurt at AAA at the time. And I think somebody else was hurt as well. They don't find themselves in this position, and they probably never have to call the Royals. And who knows if Alcides Escobar reaches the big leagues again this year. So if you're him and your career has sort of been resurrected here, you did well for them. They're offering you a guaranteed million dollars to come back. Yeah, of course you're going to take it. I don't know how much a market there would have been for him. Who knows? Maybe somebody would have offered him more than that. But in his position, I can understand why he jumped at it. Absolutely take it. Now, the one thing I'll say here, I don't think this necessarily guarantees that he's their starting shortstop in 2022. It's such a low contract. Davey has always talked about his versatility, uh, ability to play all three infield positions. It's entirely possible they make another move for somebody at a higher salary, somebody a little more accomplished, and Escobar is that utility infielder or backup plan, whatever you want to call it. Now, maybe he is the starting shortstop. That may prove to be what it is, but I wouldn't necessarily read into that as saying, okay, that's it. They've got their shortstop. There's no way they're going to go acquire anybody else now. Yeah, and I think that's the way to do it. I said this late in the season. He, to me, should be the new Isdrubal Cabrera, and you use him that way. He's your super utility infielder. He can play two very valuable defensive positions in shortstop and second base, but if you're truly rebuilding, or at the very least, retooling, you're not going forward with a 35-year-old shortstop here. So use him as a bench guy. If he has to end up starting for you at various points in the season, that's fine, but the plan should not just be Alcides Escobar. Also, too, because as nice and as cool and as you know funny what he did in 2021 was, there's an element here of you get out while the getting's good, okay? And it's you know maybe unlikely to continue over the course of 162. It's nice what he did over 75 games. Is he really going to be this good over 162 games? Maybe. I mean, as Drupal Cabrera was supposedly done, he ended up being good here. So you never know with that kind of a thing. But yeah, the plan should not just be you know, Alcides Escobar is our shortstop in 2022, and we'll move forward like that. It's interesting, too, because a guy his age, and I think, like you said, his recent experience played a role in this, but, you know, we don't know what this offseason is going to be like from a free agency standpoint, and especially with how unkind the market has been to older players in recent years, 
you could see a guy like Alcides and his agent maybe even telling him, look, bro, you did a good job, but take what they offer to you, you know, get yourself some guaranteed money for 2022 and just move forward that way. Instead of trying to play the game of, can I squeeze out another year or a few extra pennies from another team? It's like, no, just take what you're offered because you could end up on the outside looking in come the start of next season if this coming off season goes the way a lot of people think it may go. Yeah, 100%. There is, we don't know what free agency is going to look like this winter. It could be really slow. It could drag on. Remember the CBA expires December 1st. And if they don't have a deal on December 1st, then there are no free agent signings in December. That's technically a lockout if that happens. And I think as we've talked about before, does either side really have motivation to get that thing done by December 1st? It's such a weird date for this to expire. Usually these things get done when there's a hard deadline or you know, hey, spring training is starting, games are starting. You need some kind of motivation to say, we got to get this thing done. December 1st is not a good day for that to be the case. So yeah, if you're an Alcides Escobar or someone else like that, you absolutely, I think right now, will take the security over holding out and hoping you might get something better when, for all we know, if you don't sign before December 1st, you might be signing on March 1st. And that's not a position anybody wants to be in. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. A couple years ago, I was in Atlanta doing something for ESPN or something, and they had a rain delay, and Snicker invited me in, you know, because I know Tuxedo. You know who Tuxedo is? Yeah, that's that's the bench coach. And uh, I knew way from Tuxedo, New York, that I got a nickname for everybody. And then I got, I really know Wash real, real, real well. Um, I know, you know, EY, you know, real well. I know the pitching coach that was with me, I think, in Chicago in our minor leagues. I know him well, so I know his staff more, uh, you know, closer than I, I know him. But, I, yeah, I got admiration for him. All right, so we have a World Series that is all set. It will be the Atlanta Braves versus the Houston Astros. Game one is Tuesday night at 8.09, the pitching matchup, Charlie Morton versus Framber Valdez. It's been an interesting postseason from a Nationals perspective because, like we said earlier, there have been former Nats, even at times current Nats, all over the place, right? Obviously with the Dodgers and Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Obviously now with the Astros and Dusty Baker back in a World Series. Given that the matchup is Dusty versus the Braves, do you think there are any Nats fans not rooting for the Astros? I mean, this to me seems like the most obvious route in the history of roots. If you're a Nats fan, you're totally on Team Dusty and the Astros. And I know, you know, it's tough to stomach rooting for the Astros. I get that. 
But what's the alternative? Rooting against Dusty and rooting for the Braves? Sorry. Uh, I can't imagine many, if any, Nats fans are doing that. Well, I'm sure that there aren't very many rooting for the Braves, but I've heard at least from enough who just can't root for the Astros no matter what. And I get that. I understand that that's a very difficult thing to, you know, only a couple years later, all of a sudden be on board with the Astros winning the World Series. To me, when you consider what Dusty Baker has been through in his career, one of the most successful just baseball people, we're talking player and manager here in baseball history, and yet his managerial career is just littered with these close calls and agonizing losses at the worst possible moments in the worst possible ways, including a couple from here in D.C. during his two years, that I don't know how you can't at least feel good for him right now and want him to get over that hump and finally get that monkey off his back. It may not be as clear cut as this, but I think it's pretty safe to say if the Astros win the World Series, Dusty Baker's going to the Hall of Fame. He may get there anyways, regardless. He may have done enough now as somebody who's managed five different franchises to division titles, which nobody else has ever done, and now taking teams in both leagues to the World Series. But if he gets that final one, that's the only blemish on his managerial record is this. If he gets that, to me, the next time he's eligible for it, he's going to get voted to Cooperstown and he's going to go in. So on a human level, how can you not root for him or want the best for him? Yes, it's difficult because it's the Astros. I get it. You know, I'd also say that the Astros, there are a handful of players left from that 2017 team. A lot of them are not. And I think even, I'm curious in your thoughts on this. I was thinking about this like from a Nationals fan standpoint. In a way, I think you could say, hey, we should root for them to win. Because I think that elevates what the Nationals did in 2019. That the Astros, okay, let, let's say they were cheating in 2017 and maybe even in 2018. In 2019, we're pretty sure they weren't doing it anymore. And the Nats beat them. They were a really good team. The Astros were a really good team. They're a really good team again. If it turns out that the Nationals are the only team that could actually beat them in a World Series, I think that elevates what the Nationals did in 2019. And so in a sort of convoluted way, you could almost want the Astros to win now because it makes the 2019 Nationals look better. Yeah, see, to me, I've never bought that the Astros weren't cheating in 2019. I think they were doing something. And the reason I think that is because the Nationals came up with that intricate sign-concealing system that was outlined. And I think there's a reason the Nats did that. I think they knew through the grapevine that the Astros were up to stuff. Remember, the Astros doing this was not a shock to people in baseball. It was kind of known that they were up to this stuff. And I'm still amazed at that system that the Nats came up with. I guess it was Paul Menhart, if I remember correctly. And it involved all kinds of signs and things that, okay, this is the indicator, but this might be a phony sign. And what the Nationals pitchers and catchers went through in coming up with that system is still remarkable to me and such a credit to the organization in navigating what I think the Astros were doing in 19. Of course, we don't know that with certainty. I do think this, though, if the Astros win this World Series and we agree that they're not cheating now, this is kind of like the Patriots doing well after Spygate to where You can no longer really say, well, the only reason the Astros had the success they had was because of the cheating. Well, no, because they did well after that. I mean, the Astros, it's remarkable. They've made five consecutive ALCSs. That's ridiculous. And I know, like, you want to dismiss it. I want to dismiss it. I don't like the Astros. But that's a pretty ridiculous run. And so if you can now say, well, they did well, they won a World Series, in fact, without cheating, it's kind of like the Pats with Spygate. As much as you may want to knock the Patriots for Spygate, They've had a lot of success since Spygate. So the cheating only helps so much. And I think you can maybe make that case if the Astros end up winning this World Series. I mean, even if they don't, it's still pretty crazy that they've made five straight ALCSs like this. 
they're a really good team. They're really good players. And it, it's almost, it makes it, you even get more mad at them. Kind of like, you know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and those guys, like you didn't need to take steroids. You already were one of the best. Like you could have won without it. Like the Astros were good enough to win a World Series without this stuff, I think. And then they still did it. And I think that in a way it almost infuriates me more because they are really good. They're really talented. These guys are good players. It's a good team. What's also so funny, too, is if Dusty wins the World Series, the irony slash poetic justice slash quirkiness of him doing so with maybe the ultimate analytics team. I mean, this is like the baseball gods version of the most whacked out joke you could ever come up with, like that Dusty finally wins a championship and he does it with the Astros, right? The new age Astros, a team that's been at the vanguard of the sabermetrics movement. That's the team that he ends up winning a championship with, and he ends up winning the championship because the Astros needed him because the guy who led that analytics revolution for them, Jeff Lunau, was ousted because of everything that was going on with him and the cheating there and the other stuff that was going down as well. It's such an odd marriage still, Dusty and the Astros, and if that's the team with which he wins a championship, I just that I find that hysterical that that would be the team that he finally does this with. But it does show you, Al, why you have to have both sides of this. You can't be all in on one or the other. There's analytics, but there's also the human aspect of all this. And the best thing that Dusty does for any team he's with, but especially in this situation, was to be able to come in and immediately command the respect of his players, to be able to relate with them all, to understand from a lifetime in the sport of how there's no situation he's never been in. He knows how to deal with it. He is a calming influence for them. And he was able to take all the attention off of them and put it on himself. And he's comfortable doing that. And as surprising as it was at the time, in hindsight, he was the perfect hire for them. He's exactly who they needed. And just again, on a human level, I'm happy for him because if his last shot was the Nationals in 2017, the way that went down, boy, that ends up being one of the all-time what-ifs. And you would have hated to have seen his career end like that. So whatever happens in this series, and by the way, the Braves are really good too. I'm not discounting them at all. 88 wins, I don't care. This is a different team. There's a little bit of 2019 Nationals in my mind with these Braves, where they've been very good for a while now. They've kind of all got it going at the same time. They did a tremendous job patching up their holes midseason. The job Alex Anthopoulos did with that. Brian Snitker's a way better manager than anybody gives him credit for. As a Nationals fan, I get it. You don't like the Braves. They're a rival. There's plenty of reasons to not like them. You got to respect them, though, on the field. That is a really good quality baseball team. And I'm glad that Freddie Freeman is in the World Series because he deserves to be in the spotlight for the first time in his career. Yeah. I mean, you know, with Dusty and the analytics thing, I would say too, it's not either or. Like, you can be an analytics guy and be very good at relating to people. I mean, there are plenty of people like that, you know, like Craig Council with the Brewers, I would say, checks that box. The problem with Dusty was always he just was very stuck in his ways and he refused to adapt. And it was like, I never understood why he couldn't adapt. You know, I, I think if he had adapted, he would have remained the Nationals manager, or at least might have done better as the Nationals manager instead of, you know, pitching Sammy Solis in big spots like he did in that postseason. But, you know, Dusty, everyone likes the guy. There is definitely an element of him being snake bitten in these postseasons, because while it's true that he hasn't always made the right decision, it's also true that just because you don't always make the right decision doesn't mean that you always have to lose. I mean, there are plenty of like, quote unquote, analytics managers who've made wrong decisions. Joe Madden made wrong decisions. They didn't come back to bite him the way Dusty's did. It felt like everything Dusty did that wasn't precisely right ended up turning out in the worst possible way, you know? So there's just been like this dark cloud over him in October, and maybe that is, in fact, finally changing. 
We'll see. It's interesting, too, to me with the Astros. And look, there are many ways to win a World Series. There isn't just one cookie-cutter way that you have to go about doing it. But the Astros really are all about offense right now. You know, it's not so much about their pitching. They have a lineup that just bludgeons you. And that's really been the way that the Astros had gotten themselves to this World Series. And I just always find it interesting this time of year when your team's out of it to look at who's doing well and you say, okay, well, why are they doing well? What are the lessons in winning? And, you know, the Nationals in 2019 with the ultimate lesson of starting pitching and, you know, how to navigate having a bad bullpen. If the Astros win, and it's an if, we don't know, but it's kind of an interesting thing of, hey, you can just kind of bash your way to a championship. And that's kind of what the Astros will have done if they end up winning this World Series. Yeah. And (laughs) this is one reason that I'm kind of believe it or not, leaning towards the Braves right now because of the Astros pitching. They had to use everything they had to get through the Red Sox. That series, it looked after three games like it was completely on Boston's side. The Astros pitching was totally burned up. Lance McCullers was hurt. How were they going to get through the rest of this with Zach Greinke and Luis Garcia? Well, they did. And Dusty, I thought, did a brilliant job of putting them all in the right positions to have success to win that series. But what do they have left? It doesn't look like McCullers is going to be pitching for them if there is such a thing as momentum. I mean, the Braves just took down the Dodgers and did so like convincingly. There was no question at the end of that which was the better team, and it was the Braves, not the Dodgers. So the way they're going with their bullpen, they have a tenacious lineup themselves. may regret this, but I feel like the Braves are actually going to win this thing in seven. On paper, they have the advantage in pitching. There's no question about that. The Astros' hope is to just somehow figure out a way to stay afloat with the pitching and just hit like crazy. And the Astros can do that. You know, like if you look at Yuli Gurriel, plate appearance for plate appearance, he's as good as Freddie Freeman, at least this year. Like overall, has Freeman been the better player? Yeah. But like the Astros can match up with you at just about any spot on the field in terms of hitting. All right, the Dodgers. What'd you think about Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and how things ended up playing out for them this October? Well, not the way that they probably envisioned it or the Dodgers envisioned it when they made that trade. Now, not that that is ultimately the decider of who won the trade or whether it was the right move or not. But boy, the Dodgers were all in on this. And the idea was that Max and Trey were going to help lead them back to the World Series and maybe win it again. Now, Max had his moments, especially game five against the Dodgers, getting his first career save. And it was incredibly dramatic. And it was a lot of fun to watch him do that. No balls, two strikes. And Flores, did he go? He did! And the game ends! A swinging strike three! Gabe Morales rings him up! But I think we got spoiled in 2019 and don't really appreciate how much that takes out of pitchers and how it's not as easy as it looks to come in in relief on your off day and then come back and start after that. Max was not the same after that. The dead arm issue, and ultimately couldn't take the ball for game six. Now, he said he would have been fine for game seven. We'll never know. But eerie shades of the 2019 World Series when he had to be scratched. And that is a little concerning. And I think at this point, Max Scherzer's 37 years old. He's still great. He might win Cy Young. But deep down in his mind, he probably has to acknowledge that he's not what he once was physically, and that As much as you want to say, I'm going to give you everything I have, you use me however you need me to try to win in October, he may not be able to do that anymore, and that may have cost the Dodgers. In Trey Turner's case, he had a bad postseason. He really, at times, looked lost up there. And I can say I have seen that before from him. It had been a while, been a few years since he was like that, but he was swinging at everything. He was down in the count every at bat. 
swinging at breaking balls in the dirt. And from the Dodger standpoint, now he's back for another year because he, he was under contract for another year. But I do wonder, I mean, there was a lot of angst among Dodger fans about how Trey Turner performed for them in the biggest moments. Obviously, he's returning to them next year, but it may not be as much of a, hey, we've got Trey Turner, we've got an MVP candidate as our starting shortstop now in 2022. There may be some questions about him going into next year. Yeah, you know, with Trey Turner, I think people forget this because people have brought up to me like, why didn't the Nationals extend Trey Turner years ago? And there's a case to be made for that. But it's really only over the last two seasons that he has blossomed into this superstar hitter. He was not a superstar batter in previous recent seasons. This is kind of a recent development, him busting out like this. So the idea that like, well, this is just who he is now, maybe it is, it could be. But he's had an odd career. His initial season was great offensively. Then he came back down to earth, and he was about a league average hitter for like two or three years, and now 2020-2021, the offensive numbers spiked up. So we don't know if these last two seasons were just a great run or if this is, in fact, who Trey Turner now is. But, you know, when it comes to like, well, why didn't the Nationals throw $200, $300 million at Trey a few years ago? This is part of why, because he wasn't this player just a few years ago. And now you throw into the mix what we've talked about, going into his 30s, how infrequently those big money contracts work out for guys going into their 30s. You can understand why there might be some angst. With Max, you know, anyone who's a Nationals fan knows this. The list of minor slash nagging injuries have really started to pile up for him over the last few years. The guy's been a pillar of durability, but he has had like one nuisance injury after another going back really, I guess, to the second half of the 2019 season. And so, you know, he's getting older, like he's a human being. The body's starting to break down a little bit. And I do wonder how that might impact what happens with him contractually in free agency. He's going to get a big money deal. He's going to get a multi-year deal. But, you know, if you're a team and you're trying to win, you say to yourself, okay, how much do we want to pay this guy knowing that it may kind of be teetering with him physically? And we know how, to, how it is with pitchers. When it goes, it goes. And you don't always have a flashing neon sign telling you that it's about to go. Like, it just goes. And the body starts to really fail you. And are we there with Max? Or can he do the thing where he keeps plowing forward and keeps being an effective pitcher for multiple more seasons? You know, it's interesting, too, with the Dodgers, because they have this sort of ace emeritus in Clayton Kershaw. Are they going to be willing to pay a second ace emeritus in Max Scherzer? You can't lean on Max as your number one pitcher, right? I think if you're really a World Series contender, Max is a great number two, awesome number three. But because of the age, I know he was great this year, but he can't be your horse anymore. You got to allocate for the possibility of the innings coming down with him. So I'm interested to see what kind of a deal he gets this offseason. Going to get big money, but how much that money is big and how lengthy the contract is, I think that's to be determined. Yeah, I think two guaranteed years is probably going to happen for sure. I think the question would be, is there a third year? Is there an option year? Things like that. I still feel like the Dodgers are the front runners to keep him. I know some people looked at, oh, he and Dave Roberts, like they weren't on the same page and how Max in the wild card game didn't want to give the ball up and, and all that. Well, I still think deep down, what is the organization that can spend the money on him, devote that to him and provide him the opportunity to win more championships? That's what Max is about at this stage of his career. And I still think like the Dodgers are in the best position to do that. They're not the only ones. There will be others. Maybe the Giants try to get in a bidding war. That would be fascinating. Maybe the Astros with Dusty. Maybe, I hate to say this, maybe the Braves, although it's not really their MO to go that route. Let's say they come up just short and lose the World Series and they need something to get them over the edge. That may be something. I don't see like a Yankees-Red Sox thing, although you never know with that. 
But let's make it clear, he wants to win. Wherever he goes, he wants to feel like he's got a chance to win another World Series. And as much as Nats fans want to believe that a reunion is possible to come here, I'm not saying it couldn't happen eventually, but right now, unless Mike Rizzo is going out there and making big moves this winter in an attempt to win right now and convinces Max of that, I don't see it happening right now. And as we've said all along, if they were serious about trying to win in 2022, then why did you trade Trey Turner, who was under contract for another year? That, to me, was the signal they knew they're not trying to win yet, maybe in a year or two, but not yet. Yeah, the Dodgers do very much feel like the front runner. Max did seem like he was having the time of his life, certainly when things were going well with the Dodgers. Those scenes of him celebrating with his shirt off and with his kids and with him yelling at Dave Roberts and with him saying on live TV that he's drunk, you know, like Scherzer was really living it up. And the Dodgers, to me, I mean, if they're not the number one organization in the sport, they're awfully close. It's been impossible, I know, for me to ignore this postseason. All of these Dodgers castoffs who are doing well for other teams, like the Dodgers just didn't have room on their roster for people like Kike Hernandez and Jock Peterson and Alex Wood. And these guys have done well with other teams over the last few weeks. And it's like, that's the abundance of riches possessed by the Dodgers. It's the number one organization. It's the organization to me that the Nationals and every other organization should be trying to mirror because the Dodgers are combining those two things of analytics and high payroll to form this monster. And I know it's only resulted in the one World Series championship, but man, I know that any team does team building and roster construction as well as the Dodgers do. And, you know, if you're Max and you have all these resources that are available to you with the Dodgers, I think it'd be hard to turn that down, but we'll obviously see. All right. Well, you tell us what you think. We're always anxious to hear from you guys. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, Podcast at gmail.com. Like we said, we're not sure of an exact schedule for the offseason, but the best way to make sure that you get all the episodes of the Nats Chat podcast is to subscribe to the podcast. So the latest episodes are right there waiting for you when you wake up on whatever morning on which the episode comes out. So we appreciate everyone for listening. We appreciate all the feedback. We anticipate uh, plenty more Nationals news in the coming weeks. Mike Rizzo, in baseball, it's odd. We don't know the next time that Mike will speak, do we? I guess maybe the winter meetings, if in fact we have a winter meetings. Yeah, it would either be at a, if they sign a free agent of consequence, then he might, you know, speak at that. If Ryan Zimmerman has a press conference one way or the other, that could be a time we'd hear from him. Otherwise, it's the winter meetings, which are very much up in the air. Uh, They're supposed to take place in Orlando in early December, but that's after that CBA deadline, December 1st. And again, There's no CBA agreement by then. Technically, it's a work stoppage, and they're not going to hold events like that. So stay tuned. It could be be a very eventful or it could be a very quiet winter where we're all sitting around waiting for something to happen later on. I hope that's not the case, but I would not be surprised at all if that is the case. All right. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we're going to leave you with a voice memo. This comes to us from the voice of the AAA Rochester Red Wings, Josh Wetzel. And he's going to give us the update on two prominent Nationals pieces at the AAA level as last season went on, Cade Cavalli and Victor Robles. Hey guys, Josh Wetzel here, the Rochester Red Wings broadcaster. A little bit of a an update on what's going on with the Red Wings. The Wings finished the year at 49 and 77 obviously a tough year for the Red Wings who averaged roughly 4.3 runs per game that was 17th in a 20 team AAA East the uh, Wings had the 19th batting average in the league at 233 they were 15th in the league in team earned run average with a 5.0 far mark the bullpen actually pitched pretty well though the balance of the season so the bullpen was actually a a fairly strong suit of the team and Brian Bennell 
who is someone who's not yet pitched in the big leagues, a right-handed pitcher, was uh, really kind of an under-the-radar, really valuable guy. Made 36 appearances, 32 of which were in relief, and pitched 65 innings on the season. Uh, really valuable since he fulfilled a variety of roles for the Wings. I know a lot of people are interested in uh, in some of the big prospect names, such as Cade Cavalli. Six starts for Cavalli, and he had a 1-5 record, a 7.30 ERA since getting called up from AA Harrisburg. So from a raw numbers perspective, obviously it didn't look real good. His final start was a very tough one in which he struggled in throwing strikes and did not get through the first inning. I think he had a little bit of an issue with the mound in that game, quite frankly. The good news, as far as Cavalli is concerned, if you're a Nationals fan, and let's face it, you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't, he really did not give up very hard contact. 24 and two-thirds innings in AAA, he allowed 33 hits. Only two of those were home runs. They actually came on back-to-back pitches in Worcester, in fact. But he really did not give up very much hard contact whatsoever. Now, he walked 13 men in those 24 and two-thirds innings. But the raw stuff, obviously, is very, very good. Uh, It's just a matter of getting more polish. And I think when it does happen for Cavalli, it's probably going to happen very, very quickly for Cade because the, the stuff is simply outstanding. Uh, some other guys came up late in the year there, including Yohan Adone, who, of course, got the chance to pitch the season finale for the Nationals, and I thought Adone looked really good in the four innings he pitched for the Wings in a start at Worcester late in the year. Victor Robles played well after getting sent down from the Nationals, ended up playing about 23 games for the Red Wings and hit right around 300 with four home runs, a lot of other extra base hits, had a couple of nagging little injuries that prevented him from playing every game. But he was, uh, I think, a positive, played very hard when he got sent down. Rowdy Reed finished the year really well. Rowdy missed a lot of the season with a quad strain that he suffered on the very first road trip of the year, but finished extremely well. Ended up only playing about 22 games for the Red Wings and hit roughly 290 with six home runs. And uh, his home runs were real tape measure type blast. And Jake Knoll, of course, had a really good year. Knoll uh, led the league with 131 base hits. He finished right at 300, which was in the top five in the league in batting average. He was in the top 10 in the league in RBIs. He had 17 home runs, led the Nationals organization in a variety of offensive categories. So Knoll certainly was the uh, the team MVP from an offensive standpoint. Rough year overall for the Red Wings, 49-77, and 77, that final record. But, uh, you know, hey, at least baseball was back in the field in 2021 in uh, the minor leagues after no baseball at all in 2020. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast, maybe tuned in over the Internet, Nationals fans listening into Red Wings baseball on the radio, we certainly thank you and, and hope you can tune us in again as well in 2022. Ryan Zimmerman is being saluted with a standing ovation, which includes the Boston Red Sox. Their entire team is out on the edge of the grass, giving Zimmerman an ovation. He's saluting the crowd as he's being taken out of the game. He's patting his chest, looking to all corners of Nationals Park. Davey Martinez is hobbling out to greet him. (laughs) Zim mimicking Davey's gait, and they embrace in front of the first base side dugout. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.